1: Our guest today is James Barrett, author of the book, Our Final Invention, Artificial Intelligence and the End of the Human Era. Let's
2: get things started. Hi, James. Hi. How are you? I'm great. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Great. I'd like to get started by having you introduce yourself to our listeners and to tell us a little bit about your book and also what additional things that you're doing in the field of AI, and and let's go from there. Okay.
2: Well, I'm a documentary filmmaker primarily and an author and a speaker. I got into artificial intelligence or the study of artificial intelligence and critique of AI because I made a film about 17 years ago now about artificial intelligence and I interviewed Ray Kurzweil and Rodney Brooks and Arthur C. Clarke, among others. And Lee Kurzweil, of course, who's now the chief engineer at Google at the Google Brain Project, was very optimistic about AI and thought that it would bring in a period of utopian time when most of mankind's problems would be defeated, including mortality. Rodney Brooks was not quite that rosy, but he was still very optimistic. He thought robots and AI will be our partners, never our competitors. But Arthur C. Clarke, who was a scientist before he was a science fiction writer, said something like, we steer the future not because we're the fastest creature or the strongest creature, but because we're the most intelligent. And when we share the planet with something more intelligent than we are, it will steer the future. And until then, I've been pretty besotted with AI, and I still am. I still think it's a terrific set of technologies with a great deal of potential good. But at that point, some skepticism entered my mind, and it just festered, and I started interviewing people who make AI and ultimately came out with our final invention, artificial intelligence and the end of the human era.
1: So it's great. I know that one of the books that we read among others on the topic we've seen a lot of folks like Nick Bostrom and others, you know, start to be more vocal and of course Elon Musk most recently about some of the dangers yeah. of AI. But that being said, as you know, many notable AI researchers and technologists in the field such as Rodney Brooks as you just mentioned, say that we're really not that close to this vision of superintelligence and perhaps even if it is possible, especially in the areas of self-awareness and survival instinct and the desire to self-improve. Basis mm-hmm. of much of warnings about superintelligence. How do you respond to the industry experts who who disagree with the long-term vision of AI that people talk about?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I deal with those remarks sort of one at a time, and you know, and they're always very contextual. Gary Marcus, who's a NYU psychology professor and he also an AI maker, reviewed my book for the New Yorker, and he said, "Does it really matter how long it takes? If it takes 50 years or 100 years to get to machines that are smarter than us, we'll still be faced with the same dilemma: is it safe?" Have we prepared for that time? As Stephen Hawking said, if we knew that a vastly smarter alien race was going to land on our planet in 20 years, would we just you know say, come on by, or would we get ready? And you know, there's been a lot of people since I wrote my book, they're getting on the AI risk and AI skepticism bandwagon for really good reasons. You know. Elon Musk is one. Stephen Hawking is another. Bill Gates, lifelong programmer, is another. Stuart Russell, who co authored the standard text of AI, AI, a modern approach, is another. And I could go on and on. And these are people that know a lot about AI. My skeptical sense is. That people who are defending it the most vociferously have a giant economic stake in the outcome. And you know, Mark Zuckerberg came out and said Elon Musk's comments were irresponsible. Well, Mark Zuckerberg has the biggest financial stake of all in the outcome of AI. Google, you know, when they don't like something that's written about them, they have it erased. They have 400 lawyers. Google does not tolerate a lot of, you know, sort of insurrection from its own people. And it's not gonna come out and be supportive of people who are talking about AI risk. Uh-huh. So I think the lines are drawn pretty clearly with who's gonna make a whole lot of money from AI and those people are gonna <laughs> put up a, a bit of a defense against people like me. Good point.
0: Yeah. Now I know in your book you had said that, you know, we're about ten years away from artificial human intelligence. Your book was written four years ago. So do you think that we're still going to create artificial human intelligence by 2023? And then if so, What are the key signs to indicate we're reaching that point?
2: You know, there's no... (laughs) You know, I'm not a futurist, and being a futurist would be the worst job in the world because, you know, as they say, super-intelligent machines are always 20 years away. One place where I really do follow the guidance of Ray Kurzweil, he is an excellent technologist. He won the Edison Award for inventing. Before he became, you know, sort of a preacher for the singularity, he was an extremely accomplished inventor. He thinks that by 2029, we'll have human-level intelligence at the price of a computer. So human-level intelligence in a machine that's cheap. He also said he wants to create a machine that makes 300 trillion calculations per second and just share that with a billion people. And so what that is is an online service that's intelligent. The applications for that would be, you know, amazing. Imagine chaining together a bunch of super intelligences and attacking things like climate change or drug research or cancer research or, unfortunately, weapons development. So he's headed for that. And 2029 does not seem you know, anymore to be too close. I took a poll of AI makers at a conference. The mean date for coming up with human-level intelligence in a machine was 2045. I think it's going to be sooner than that. I'm probably 2029, 20, 2030. But I tell you, what's happened with Go and deep learning was a little unexpected. And I think other people are speaking up now because they see the potential for just accelerating advances towards that goal of human-level intelligence in a machine.
1: Mm-hmm. We actually talked directly to that point on our most recent podcast called Should We Be Scared of AI? We published not too long ago. And in that, we say that we could be you know, one major innovation away from greatly accelerating the pace of AGI. And I think the point that we make is that nobody really knows. It's just like, as you mentioned with deep learning, you know, nobody really knows how soon we are to achieving the vision of super intelligence or how far we are. We could be sooner than we think. We could be farther than we think. Yeah. I think the reason is because it's all based on innovations. and. You know, if some smart person at some university or company somewhere comes up with some major innovation, then everything can be massively accelerated a lot faster than we were expecting.
2: Well, you know, it's like Ben Goetzel. If you don't know him, he's worth looking at. He's a fascinating person. Ben Goetzel is trying to make AGI, Artificial General Intelligence. And he said to me that he was they were waiting for a breakthrough, like just as calculus was a breakthrough and provided a lot of mathematical shorthands and algebra was a breakthrough that provided a lot of mathematical shorthands. They were waiting for the next giant innovation. And I think, frankly, I think deep learning is as close to a giant innovation as we've had in some time.
1: that actually sort of brings me to the next question, which is that, especially for the folks who are sounding the warning bells about artificial intelligence, you know, just like research into nuclear fission or fusion, which everybody knows has catastrophic humanity ending potential. But if this was the 1920s or 30s, it would have been very hard to get researchers and the governments and other folks to stop their research in nuclear fusion and fusion because they see all the other benefits of of nuclear energy, at least the benefits they were chasing. So what should we do now about all this research and attention? and money that's being focused on AI now. You know, can we really expect to stop or even slow the pace of AI research.
2: At the end of my book, Our Final Invention, this is where I get. And it's basically there's such a huge economic wind propelling the development of AI that there's no way we can relinquish this technology or slow it down. The amount of money invested doubled every year since 2009. A Gardner and company reckoned that by 2025, the value of AI and automation will be $25 trillion, which will be the largest sector of the economy. So there's too much money to be made for this to slow down. and Unfortunately, there are groups like the Future of Life Institute and like MIRI, the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, especially MIRI has been at this for 10 years, trying to raise awareness and develop AI that's reliably friendly. But at the same time, it's full speed ahead for so many companies. You know, Google has a $200 billion war chest. The NSA, the National Security Agency, which has a long track record of abusing our rights, has a $50 billion a year war chest. How does a non for profit like the Future of Life Institute or MIRI compete with this much money and this much talent being thrown at the goal of making machines as intelligent as humans? I don't know how you slow it down. I think the Future of Life Institute has the right idea by trying to get the AI makers and the policymakers and the ethicists all together. But then how do you bring China to the table? How do you bring Russia to the table?
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the feedback comments about the book was that folks are saying, look, you're definitely highlighting a lot of the challenges, a lot of the problems, you know, showing us the potential path to this vision of superintelligence, but you don't really talk too much about solutions. And I think to that point, you know, it sounds like one of the things you're saying, is like it may be really hard to put the cork back in this bottle. You know, we've already sort of released the genie, and now basically it's a matter of just dealing with it inevitably occur at some point in the future, right? So the people who are asking for solutions to this problem.
2: Well, as you said, you know, and I use this example a lot as well, it is like fission. In the 20s and 30s, they thought the biggest, most respected physicists didn't think nuclear fission was possible. And then it was. And then it was weaponized and we incinerated two cities with bombs. And then we held a gun at our own heads as a species throughout the whole nuclear arms race. And what do we have today? We have this insane dictator in North Korea threatening to use nuclear weapons. We had no maintenance plan for that technology. And right now, we have no maintenance plan for this technology. And this technology is actually more sensitive than fission. This is the technology that invents technology. So I didn't have any solutions. and I don't pretend to have a lot of solutions now. I think one of the keys is probably getting the word out to a lot of people so that the government at some point steps in with regulation. And I'm the last person to recommend that for anything. First of all, how do you educate Congress these technologies? And then how do you get any meaningful legislation passed? And right now, it's probably too early anyway. But if we just horse around like we did with fission, before we know it, we'll have some cataclysmic disaster.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, Putin had recently warned that the one who becomes the leader in this sphere of AI will be the ruler of the world. So yeah. that is a pretty strong statement. <laughs> <And> he's,
2: <laughs> no, he's no dummy. He is a thug. He's a murderer, yeah, but Putin he's no dummy. no
0: dummy. No.
2: You know, this is absolutely true. There's a huge first mover advantage. And it's not, you know, I used to think it was just a competition among companies, Google, IBM, uh, Amazon. Baidu, but it's really going to be a competition among governments because whoever makes super intelligence first will be able to control the other intelligence. This concept for anybody who wants to look it up, it's called the singleton concept and it's extremely dangerous having one super intelligence that can control all the other AIs. If you did a Google search, search artificial intelligence and the singleton principle, it's about the problem with... This is why some people recommend like Elon Musk, This is why he sensibly started a company called OpenAI to make AI development transparent and to grow an ecology of AIs simultaneously around the world so no one gets super dominance. And it's either a good idea or a really bad idea. I can't figure out which. If you make AI development transparent, then don't you put it in the hands of bad actors. And that's a big problem. Bad actors who didn't have insight and didn't have talent enough to develop it on their own. So yeah. Another point, we
0: had, another point that we had brought up before was that I think people want to assume that good actors are using AI to do good things, so they'll feed it good data. But what happens when bad actors feed AI bad data and it learns off that? And by bad data, I mean malicious. Yeah. So that it learns off that and that it's, yeah. it's not doing something for the greater good. You know, So what happens and what should we be doing about getting AI in the hands of bad actors?
2: getting it out of the hands of bad actors. Well, first of all, the good actors aren't that good. I mean, as you mentioned, there are huge biases in data sets. There's sexist biases, there are racial biases, there are biases that keep minorities from getting bank loans. If you feed a million pictures in the neural net, pictures we have at hand, you will believe that all doctors are white men. So there's huge amount of potential abuse in just in creating giant data sets and using big data. And then the good actors are not that good. Google has 400 lawyers because they get sued all the time. If you're thinking about studying law, go through the case law of lawsuits against Google. I mean, they've been privacy lawsuits, they've been copyright lawsuits. Google is a gigantic corporation that seems to have no real head. There are so many units to it that act independently. How do you keep that under control? And they have so much money that they shut up dissent. They've had critique come from inside. Those people get fired. They've had Forbes published an article that was critical of Google, and then Google had them take it down because they seem to own a lot of Forbes. So I'm not sure if we have a lock on who the good actors are.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's a good point. And when somebody controls the search algorithm, as you were just mentioning earlier, it's it's easy to intimidate publishers because you can kind of make them invisible on the web. So, you know, <laughs> that's the truth.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that's virtual murder. And that's a really serious thing. You know, Internet invisibility is the same as not existing in a commercial sense. So yeah, they have awesome power. These companies are becoming more like nation states than corporations, in my mind, and none of them are particularly virtuous.
1: Sounds like it could be an interesting follow-up book to
2: all this. You could write a book about sensitive technologies and corporations, you know, start with Union Carbide and Bhopal. Our innovation runs way ahead of our stewardship. So Union Carbide decided to build a chemical plant in an intensely densely populated area, and I think it was 18,000 people who died at Bhopal. Then they renamed the company and sold it off it wouldn't keep coming back to haunt them. But we tend to have accidents and we're a little bit chastened and then we move on. Some accidents are recoverable, but superintelligence won't be like a bomb. It won't be something that blows up and then you clean it up. It's, it'll be something that's widely distributed around the planet and you just can't simply turn it off.
1: Uh-huh. Well, I think that brings us to the last question. I think that's relevant. And that is that, you know, AI has been around for a little while. It's been around for several decades. Basically, since the beginning of computing, and it's been through several waves of interest, investment and then decline of interest, you know, the so-called AI winters, you know, after the yeah. period of the 60s and 70s, and then there was a decline, and there was the resurgence of interest again in the 80s and 90s, and then that declined, and now we're sort of in this new resurgence of interest. And a lot of people sort of attribute these AI winters to an inability of AI to live up to its expectations. It didn't do what people were claiming it would do, and so funding dried up and interest dried up. So what is different now about kind of where we are in this latest cycle of interest and investment for AI that will not only live up to its expectations, but surpass them in a way that the dangerous ways, especially that we've written about in the book?
2: Three things. Giant data sets faster, better processors. They're using graphics processing units, and they turn out to be really good at powering neural nets. So it's data sets, graphic processing units, and it's some clever and innovative techniques. Those three things have just completely opened the door to rapid innovation and success with AI tools. So yeah, I think the AI winners are over.
1: So, so if I could just sort of summarize, you think that there were some technological hurdles. So, back in the you know 50s, 60s, and 70s, obviously we had not a lot of computing power. And then the 80s and 90s, we had better computing power, but obviously not as good as we had now. But there was a data challenge, especially around the expert systems. So, you think basically it's the confluence of surpassing some technological hurdles, ability now to deal with just massive, almost infinite amount of data at this point. Yeah, And then and, combined, and, I guess, and, yeah. with now with this new technique. Is that
2: right? Yeah, techniques, big data, and these using a new kind of processor. If anyone wants to Google a good article about it, Tim Kelly, the futurist, wrote a really good article about the confluence of these three things and why there's so much excitement about AI right now. And I want to say that I am absolutely fascinated by AI. I think it's a wonderful technology. I do see the, its potential for great good. I think if we manage to survive this next 20 years, we could solve a lot of our problems with AI. It's this profoundly inward looking technology. It asks us who we are in a way that no other technology ever has because it combines psychology with neuroscience and logic and just all the things we do. The science of AI is trying to do better. So, despite the title of my book and the tone of my rhetoric, I'm actually a big, big fan of AI. That's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think we're, I think
1: we're on, on the same page. I mean, obviously, one of the things we're trying to do is we're trying to keep track. Our mission is just to be aware of what's Good. happening, Good. keep track, and be, out, as I say, influential outside observers. Is sort of our role.
2: Well, I think, <laughs> I think what, you're, what you're doing is very important, and that's getting the word out. Because one of the reasons I wrote Our Final Invention is because there was no text out there that explained in layman's terms what was going on. And, you know, this is technology that will impact everyone. And it ultimately threatens everyone or ultimately benefits everyone. But it it will behoove everyone to know about it and then to get involved with the discussion and probably ultimately to be writing your senators and congressmen about, you know, how do we keep this safe? How do we keep this wild technology safe?
0: Yeah. Okay, James, I think this, this is a great place to wrap it up. And so thank you very much for joining us for today's podcast.
2: The pleasure is mine. Thank you very much.
0: And listeners, we'll post articles and concepts discussed in the show notes for today's podcast.
2: Yeah, And thank
1: you all for joining us. We really appreciate you participating. And we once again, we want to thank James Barrett for joining us on this podcast.
2: Thank you. I look forward to speaking with you again.
0: Likewise. All right, listeners, we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts
1: visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll see
2: you at the next podcast.